Hi everyone, this is Brian Reisman, host of Side Jams, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Be sure to keep up with the show on Facebook, Instagram, or through my Brian Reisman account on Twitter. Hi, this is Reese Fulber from Frontline Assembly. You're listening to Side Jams with Brian Reisman on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Singer and musician Gary Newman is the synth-pop and synth-rock pioneer who first came to prominence at the dawn of the 1980s with singles like I Die, You Die, We Are Glass, and the number one UK hits are Friends Electric and, of course, Cars. Since that time, he has been a prolific composer. His latest release, Intruder, is his 19th studio album and examines the climate change crisis from the point of view of Mother Earth herself. Like his previous album, Savage, Songs from a Broken World, it hit number two in the UK Top 10 and charted in multiple countries. Both releases serve up compellingly dark sonic tapestries that complement his diverse catalog. Check out the tunes I Am Screaming and Saints and Liars for a good idea of what the intriguing intruder is like. When he has the chance to break away from making music, Gary loves to travel the globe with his wife Gemma and their three daughters Raven, Persia, and Echo. For episode 52 of Side Jams, he shared his travel adventures along with tales of his flying days, including being an air display pilot, which you can catch a glimpse of in the vintage video for the song Warriors. Gary also talked about his interest in boating and his intermittent diversions into candle making. Along the way, we also discussed our philosophies of life, and he described how having Asperger's has been a benefit throughout his pioneering music career. This was my first time speaking with Gary, who made for a truly enlightening and entertaining interviewee. Well, I'm enjoying the new album. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. It's funny because I see a lot of interviews with you where you specifically talk about, you know, like you're, you're obviously you love making new music. You've been making a lot of new music over the years, you know, and everyone's like, let's go back to the 80s. I'm like, yeah, but there's a new album. And like your last <laughs> album, your last album hit number two in England. I mean, it's yeah. like, <laughs> which is great, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, there's there's been times when it's been a bit frustrating, but I, I understand. Yeah, I I understand the the legacy side of it. it. It's just you don't want it to dominate. You know, it's it's a it's a small part of a bigger conversation. It is. I'm a big proponent of listening to new music by veteran artists. You know, like I love the last Billy Idol record. Ten years ago, Duran Duran did a great album. And the last album was good too, but the last one was it was kind of like an updating of their eighties stuff, but it was more mature lyrics, better musicianship. Like people grow and evolve. The last Judas Priest album I loved. I mean, it was just people that are still putting out music that's relevant and critics always discuss about relevancy. I'm like, well, you know, if you got several hundred or several thousand people showing up at night to your shows, <laughs> it's relevant to somebody. Yeah. You know? And I think in England and Europe too, there's they embrace that more than I think in the States in some ways. <laughs> Uh, do you know what? I've, I've often thought it's the opposite. I've, I've, I've often really? thought, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I've often found America to be far more um, willing to to enjoy it, sort of, which I've not. I'm not actually a fan of, you know, but, but far yeah. more sort of willing to still be into people that have haven't done anything relevant for like 30 years and they're still going oh yeah yeah great and still go to the concerts and still just listen to those old songs and i've always and i've always thought that was more prevalent in in america than it is in europe where it, yeah i've always thought of britain as being much more sort of ruthlessly interested in the next new thing mm. and very quick to dispose of people that were there a little oh, bit before so it's very difficult to longevity is more difficult in britain not impossible, obviously, but more more difficult because they they are so obsessed about finding the next new thing. You know, they tend to dismiss or dispose of previous sort of successes. You know, it's funny. I can't keep up. It's like I, I cover everything. I do music, movies, TV, comic books, books, and I and my brain is always on overload. I mean, I, this past year, I spent a lot of time making money on Blu-ray commentaries for movies from like the '60s to the '90s. And then and I was like, oh, my God, I have to catch up now with like streaming. I'm like, yep, that's not going to happen. You, you just have to, I, you know, and even your music, I'm newer to your music. You know, in the 80s, I was a metal kid. Oh, really? So I listened to a lot of some of this stuff early, but then I was like, yeah, you know, I was into heavy. I was an honor student that loved really heavy rock. And, and so in recent years, like the synthwave movement, for example, has now gotten me back into discovering things like your music. Then like, I knew that you had a lot of albums out. So now I'm enjoying, you know, I enjoyed uh, listening to Savage and then. 
conversely, I discovered Human League were like almost an industrial group before they became pop. I was like, oh, didn't know that. So like all of a sudden there's this history of music that expands, especially with streaming now. People can more easily discover what's going on. Yeah. And I've noticed in your music, there's there's an Eastern influence going on. Like I listened to the, the last album. There's a couple of songs in the last album, you know, including My Name is Ruin that have that Eastern vibe. And the new album opens up with that. I think with Betrayed, there's that same kind of vibe going on. I'm kind of curious yeah. where that comes from. It's, a, it's really just a fascination with Middle Eastern melodies are, are to a Western ear are, are unpredictable. Yes. And I never I never really know where they're going with, with a Western melody. You kind of got a good idea, you know, mm-hmm. even lyrically where it's you know, a line will start. And, you know, I think I know where this is going. And it does usually, you, you know, usually usually ends up exactly where you think it's going to go. I like that. I like the unpredictability of, of where it's going. So I try to bring that element in into what I do. Quarter tones too, right? I mean, they <laughs> and there's that sli- where you slide just off the note and back again. That that sort of thing. And I love all that. I'm not particularly good at it, but I love all that sort of thing. And on Intruder, I there's a, a musician called Gorkum Sen who, mm-hmm. who I was able to get on it, who's Turkish, uh, and he's invented this instrument called a yabaha, the only one of its kind in the world that I'm aware of. And really. Yeah, every time I see a photograph of it, it looks a bit different to the time before. So I think he's still working on it. You know, I think he's still adding bits to it. <laughs> is it is it was is it like what what does it sound like or what was it inspired by? Well, it has it's definitely got a Middle Eastern feel to it. To, but to look at it, it's a central stem with with strings. It's a string instrument, okay. Yeah, but not many. Um, and he plays it with finger or with bow, but connected to that, it appears to be a lot of like very long wobbly springs yeah which are connected to to different types of drums and the drums change depending on what he's doing yeah um so he'll be playing all this amazingly middle eastern sounding stuff it's beautiful and he's fantastic at what he does and then he sort of leans forward and he hits one of these springs and there's this other <laughs> stuff happens you know whoa what is that you know so it's like a synthesizer but totally organic do you know what i mean it's it's, oh, it's, it's perfect for you because you're yeah, the, you, you I mean, do all the electronic stuff so. it's amazing <laughs> so it gave it gave me everything that i wanted you know it sounds that i'd never heard before but with a middle eastern sort of vibe running through the whole thing totally unique you know it, it took me a while to to convince him to play on the record because yeah. he's you know he's invented this thing this is his life it's his he's he's put his whole life into developing this instrument and he's really protective about it. He doesn't want someone like me coming along, getting him to play on the record then stealing all the sounds and making a sample CD and selling it, you know, <laughs> and, cutting, and cutting him out completely. So I, 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 I had to spend some considerable time, you know, reassuring him and, and signing various bits of paper that I would not do that. You know, and I, I tried to explain <laughs> to him, you know, I said, no, the, you, you, you sort of try to understand that the reason I want you want it is because you are unique. You know, it totally defeats the object of that. If I then go and sell all those sounds and I'm not, you know, I don't have a history of stealing people's sounds and selling them. You know, so everybody just, else samples your sounds instead. Yeah. Google me, <laughs> yeah, Google me and you'll find that I'm quite above board, but he was, he's lovely. He's, he's such a, he's such a lovely person, very gentle. And, um, he just needed some reassurance, you know, and I, I completely understand where he was coming from. So I gave him that. He played on three songs, first mm-hmm. three songs, actually, on the on the album. An amazing contribution, especially in the first song. He played on a song called The Gift. Yep. And, and that song really, we were re- really able to let the Yeba Ha kind of do its thing towards the end of the song. Um, in the first two, it's sort of more ethereal background, kind of just weird atmospheric noises. Essential, you know, they really do need to be there. But on the gift, he does like this solo at the end of it, and it's just beautiful. But when I first heard it, you know that you know the, the, the hairs on your arms stand up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a bit bit of a nonsense for the most part, isn't it? But it did absolutely <laughs> did. Wow, look at that! You know, so it was a real moment for me, and it was it was amazing. I'm I'm really grateful and honoured to have him on it. It seems to be a continuation, a bit of the post-apocalyptic kind of vibe from the last album there's a couple some of the lyrics on here are 
like I am screaming in it and it breaks me again, you know, are interesting because they actually couldn't not only just relate to that kind of a world, but they kind of relate to the modern world at this point, especially after the pandemic we were just through. Yeah. Well, intruder set in the now, I mean that the album before Savage was, was um, a post climate apocalyptic future. And it looked at the human condition really in, in that what would people become in yeah. that world? What would they need to become to survive and how would that affect them? Or would they be haunted by that? Would they, realize that this was awful you know that humanity wasn't always like that you know that was yeah. what i was trying to do with savage uh this one is very very different it, it, although it still has climate change as its theme this yeah. one tries to give voice to the to the planet if the planet could speak or, or sing you know what would it say mm. you know, how does it feel how would it express the way it feels now how does it feel about us and what we're doing to it um, so that's the whole idea behind Intruder. So very much set in the now, um, not science fiction, not looking at the future, but how does the earth feel today, you know, about yeah. what we're going to do. And it all came from a poem. My, my um, youngest is called Echo. My youngest daughter is called yeah, Echo. Yeah. And she wrote a poem about two years ago called Earth uh, when she was 11. And it's pretty much intruder. You know, it's the Earth talking to the other planets in the solar system, explaining to them why the Earth is sad and all the horrible things that people have done to it. And it was really lovely um, and very sort of sensitive and sort of lots of empathy. And oh, you know, I, really, I was really proud of her. But I shamelessly stole it and turned it into an <gasps> album. <laughs> Stealing from your children. I'm yeah, sorry. yeah, shameless. <laughs> But I've given a, you know, I, I'm being honest. I'm fessing up to everybody. Um, and when you, when the, when the album comes out, you know, you open the gatefold, and her poem is there in full in it right. on 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 the artwork. So I even I even paid her for it the other day. Excellent. So uh, it's all above board. You know, nothing nothing underhand going on. But that's all covered. <laughs> that's that, yeah. You know, that's where it came from. You know, it was it was because of my eleven year old and what and what she had done. Mm-hmm. For my podcast, Josiah James and I talk a bit about music and they talk about people's outside passions and their hobbies, uh-huh. you know, and yeah. I've obviously, I know one of the things that you're big on, even at least before the pandemic hit us is that you're big on traveling. In fact, you just did a, I think you just did an interview with it was sound sphere where you mentioned that in a year and a half period, you guys had gone to 28 different countries, which yeah. probably explains the diversity in a lot of your music for one thing. And you're interested in saying, for example, Arabic music. Mm-hmm. Um, have you always been like that? Is that something that came along once you're more successful in music and had the ability to travel? Uh, it expanded uh, with the music success. But uh, even before that, I was lucky in that my um, my dad used to work at British Airways. Yeah, yeah. And so he got uh, cheap flights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were able to travel into the Europe um, and beyond um, fairly cheaply. So we did. You know, we would go to Cyprus and Malta and spain all different sort of places through europe uh, and it was yeah. it was great you know and so i got to travel a fair bit as a as a kid but then when the when the music thing happened obviously that it, it opens up the entire world and it's it's just been amazing but my biggest interest outside of music was actually airplanes i was i was an air display pilot for about 12 15 years Used to before do, you before you really your family life kicked in um, well, I, I started to I started flying lessons when I was about 19, 18, mm-hmm. 19, I think, got my license. And then the success happened. So I had some money. So I bought my own airplane and got into that. Started my yeah. own airplane company at one point called Newman Air. Um, ah. Do you have any photos flight. of a plane with your logo on it? Still? Yeah, there? I do, actually. I do, somewhere. I, I, had, a, I had a few. Um then I flew. I flew around the world for an adventure in 1981. Got got arrested in India for on suspicion of smuggling and spying. That was weird. Had loads of. Now, how, very, how long was how long was that interrogation? Four days. They kept us for. In the oh place my god! To, yeah, it was pretty heavy actually. Um, so you can withstand any music criticism at this point after dealing with that <laughs> for four days. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a weird one. Um, so they just had you in a room. They just kept you jailed somewhere. Well, it was really weird, actually. We were, we were, let's say, we were flying around the world. We were actually, mm-hmm. we'd been in Madras, and we were flying from Madras. We went across India, up, up the east coast of India to an airway, and we were going to fly across the Indian Ocean to Thailand. Um, we flew under the airway so that if anything happened, we could communicate with the airliners and they could relay 
any emergency information that we might need to send them. Okay. So that was a reason for sort of this slightly dogleg route. Uh, we got about 60, 70 miles out and the engine started to run really ragged. So that was scary. So we mm. turned back and got, got back to land and landed at a place called Visakapatnam on the East Coast. Um, luckily, m- managed to get it back before it quit altogether. And then it all started to go horribly wrong. And they were very suspicious about why we were there. Very suspicious about the fact that we had camera. camera. You know, I, I couldn't quite understand that. Um, so I explained to them who I was. I said, Look, I'm, I'm a British musician and we're flying around the world. Uh, and they said, why? I said, well, for an adventure, you know, because I can, really. You know, I just I've always wanted to do it. And he said, well, if you're a British celebrity, then where are all your press cuttings? As if you carry them around with you, you know, as if you keep a little bag. <laughs> of, so I was going, no, that's that's a bit mad, you know. And uh, to begin with, you get all very British about it, you know. Do you know? <laughs> Do you know? That <laughs> yeah. My pa- my passport says the might of the British Empire will come to my aid if I'm in need of it. You, you just be careful who you're talking to. Cool, they don't give a monkeys about any of that. And then he accused us of spying on this aeroplane that was parked at this airfield. Yeah. you know which is a thing called a britain norman islander that they make in britain on the isle of Wight. and the man that i was flying with my uh, you know the other pilot used to be a test pilot for britain norman so i was trying to explain to these the, the authorities he's probably flown that actual plane that you're telling us that we're we're spying on and it's just a little twin engine propeller plane you know who's going to spy on that it wasn't like some latest fast jet you know stealth technology yeah yeah yeah. mickey mouse my airplane was bigger than this um it just and it just it went from silly to ridiculous and then it got a bit frightening because they started getting quite heavy and they put us up in this place where they kept us for four it wasn't wasn't a prison or a police station but it, it wasn't very nice and then they would come like two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, the door would come banging open and they would come flying in. All had guns. You know, why are you here? Why are you here? Took our passports off us. It was very horrible. It wasn't, at the time, it wasn't fun at all, you know. And, um, but it'll be in your autobiography. This, this Oh, yeah, no, I did. It. A book book came out in October, so it's all in there. But it was, it was um, it's a really, really interesting thing to sort of talk about now. I was absolutely not enjoying it at all when it was going on, I was really glad to get away. Isn't it interesting how like, you know, Western social society is so obsessed with celebrity and other cultures are like, whatever, mm-hmm. like they, they, it doesn't really matter to them, which of course explains why we've had such crappy behavior during the pandemic where everyone's concerned <laughs> with themselves. Whereas like, you know, I mean, look, we look at Asian culture and we, a lot of us think of it as stoic and very conform, especially in China, which is communist. We also have, you have Japan, you have South Korea, you have Thailand, all these other countries and their sense of, respecting other people's boundaries has worked a lot better uh, especially you know japan's having some problems again but still like a lot of these countries have taken a different approach where it's like here we want to do whatever we want whenever we want and it's actually not really how it works which ties into what you're talking about with your album being the, from, from the perspective of, of mother earth of the planet yes. you know it's like yeah you guys think you can do whatever you want but there's a price to this which is what i think the pandemic is about mother nature to me is sending us a message and i'm not sure people are getting it you know, I think everyone wants to be normal, quote unquote, again. I don't think it's going to be normal completely again, because we don't know what, what's going to happen yet. No, there's a there's a song on the album called The Gift. I think it's the third song in. Um, and that's yeah, specifically yeah. about COVID. And it takes the argument that, you know, COVID could be a deliberate, not human made, but, you know, nature if it, my my feelings were that if 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 the nature you near know, the earth or nature as a system yeah identifies human beings as a threat or as an infestation of some kind which we most certainly are there must be By a now, mechanism yeah. with you know there must be a mechanism within nature to deal with something like that and so i started to think that covid might be the earth fighting back that might be the first yeah. of many ever more refined attempts to cull us, even down to smaller numbers where we could be less damaging or to kill us all completely. Oh, yeah. the phrase, yeah, because the earth would flourish without us being here. But then I started to think, maybe it's not the first. Maybe this, is, maybe this has been going on for 100 years. Maybe we've been at war with the planet for two, 300 years. You know, when did the earth realise that we were a problem? It might not be now. We are becoming well, at least a hundred years ago. It did. 
Yeah. Industrial Revolution, it probably all started from then. Yeah, you well. know, it seems to me that we are only now becoming aware of how dangerous we are and how much damage we're doing. And we're trying to convince enough people that we need to do something about it before it's too late. And we are running out of time. These are, these are all, this is all true. But the earth itself might have identified us as a problem a long time ago. So, you know, COVID might not be the first. It might be one of many that have been coming yeah, for quite a while. That's what I'm thinking of. You know, our ingenuity and our creativity and our intelligence enables us to keep coming up with drugs that fight these things and keep them at bay or whatever, yeah. that, as, as we're doing with COVID. So we are in this war, you know, and in another few years, there'll be another one, you know, and it'll be even more deadly and more sneaky and we'll have to fight that one. And, you know, it's, it's I've got, I'm, I'm starting another album very, very soon. I'm really, I was about to say, really, it sounds like another Gary Newman album. <laughs> yeah i'm really beginning to think that that might be a good theme for it you, you know this this that we are at war with the planet and it's a war that yeah. we probably don't deserve to win you know it'd probably be best if we didn't not that i want to die i want my kids to want to die but you know if you're talking about the survival yeah. of the planet then you know, get rid of us and you really don't have much of a problem well you know it's interesting I mean, you've done a lot of traveling and you said you said it's important for your for your daughters to to experience the world. What have, what, how has it been for them? I mean, you've, you've, you've traveled a lot. I mean, I, I think when I was a kid, I went to Spain, you know, went to Spain <laughs> on an exchange trip for three weeks. Um, my parents took me to Nova Scotia and Quebec. Um, but we know we didn't, and we traveled around parts of the States. We had relatives in Illinois and Florida, but we didn't, you know, they tried to do as much as they could, but you know, we're middle-class and everything else. Yeah. They, they've seen a lot. How has it opened up their worldview and how has it changed your worldview even over time? It, it, it makes an enormous amount of difference to the way you see the world um, when you see it, you, you know, when you actually go there and experience it. For, it makes you far more tolerant and understanding. You, you, know, you realize that people all over the world are very much the same. You know, no matter what color, what culture, whatever they are, you're very much the same. We'll have the same fears and dislikes. We'll enjoy much the same things. Yeah. You'll dislike, you know, we feel pain the same. We feel pleasure the same. We're all much the same. And I think traveling is fantastic for really, really sort of putting that right in your face. You know, I've seen things. Um, I've seen awful things. You know, I've seen when I was younger, my, my idea of rich and poor was based on British culture. You know, there was well, naturally. Is, yeah. This is poor. That's rich. And then you start to travel and you find out that that is nothing like poor poor can be so much worse than that and, and so it it broadens you as a human being and it and it and it makes you so much more aware of the struggles and the difficulties and you know and sympathetic to the problems of other people you know you don't sit at home in your nice house watching your telly with your you know your two cars outside and you whatever you know and, and you i think to be a truly decent human being you need to be aware of what other people are going through it's why i have so much sympathy for you know asylum seekers and you know, people running from syria and you know, places like that you know the, the things that oh, these yeah. people, the things that these people are going through you know most people in the states or britain you know will, will never ever come close to even touching anything like that and there seems to be a scathing lack of sympathy you know for these people and what and what they what they've gone through and what should be a huge welcome you know sanctuary is is not always and it's it's disappointing well we're in a very big survivalist mode right now and after the last administration we had i mean it's very clearly about give me mine it's different over here. We have a lot of creature comforts and people aren't willing to give up. I'm, I'm pretty simple. I mean, as a writer, and I know as you as a musician, the pandemic hasn't been great, but I've talked about this a lot with many guests. The fact, you know, we can hermit. I can go and I can be in my apartment for a week. I have, I can watch movies. I can write. I can create in the world. A lot of my friends like to be out more in the world. So it's been harder for them. Yeah, I think, but I kind of, I realize that there's things that we should, I, I complain more about the idiocy of other people than being quarantined. If we have to do this another six months to a year, that's what we're going to do. The last pandemic took a couple of years to go through the cycle and we're not out of this yet. And everyone's rushing out as if there's a big Hollywood ending. And we seem to like that. Um, you know, we really do. We, and, it, and it doesn't quite work that way, but you know, on a more positive note, what's been the more, what's been the most magical experiences your kids have had traveling? 
a particular um, country or an event, something that you thought was really great that you shared together? Well, pretty much all of it. Um, no, I t- we took them to Bora Bora once. Oh, really? um, I've never been there. I always hear about it. I'm like, what is it like? Oh, it's just, it's just stunning. You, you know, I, we were flying in. Um, and you could see out the windows. You, you, you look down, look down at the island. You've got this sort of volcano and the lagoon, and it's turquoise, and it's every Pacific Island sort of Elvis Presley film you've ever seen. You know, just, <laughs> just it's amazing. all true. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And then you land there, and you get out, and it, and they don't have cars that take you to where you need to go. It's boats. All these boats are lined up, and you get on the boat that goes to your particular, you know. You know hotel or whatever and it's all you're out on the water you know everything goes out onto the water the statue cottages and it's just ah oh, it's just stunning and i remember looking at the kids then you know and they were just absolutely blown away by this and experiencing it and taking it all in and, and i was glad to see that they weren't taking it for granted you know okay. it wasn't just oh another another place you, you know they're really really interested and in looking at all the fish and you know just love loving it and i think it's things like that, you know, and, and other things. Yeah, we was in um, uh, Prague. I love Prague. Once, what a great yeah. city! Are you, have you been to that church? It's all bones. I don't know if I did actually. I, went to, I remember there's the black church, that big thing on the hill. No, it's not that one. It's it's it's. Um, I think oh, I, I missed it. I think it's outside the city, and I, I found yeah. out about it later. I was like, no. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a drive to get out to it, but we, okay. we went out to that, and you, you it's and it's just. All bones. Everything is bones. You know, it's 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 a horror movie fan's dream. Yeah, it's like a miniature version of the catacombs in Paris. We went to catacombs in Paris. You you know, um, we went there, but the week after that Bataclan terrorist attack, oh yeah, yeah, we decided to go to France in some you know pathetic attempt to show support for the French people. So we did that. Um, Went to the catacombs. Went to the Eiffel Tower. You know. um i'll just you know all over all over paris yeah. loved it and again you know the, the kids are just taking all this in so either through touring or through the traveling that we do with just as a family outside of touring you are constantly trying to expose them to as many cultures and people and languages as you possibly can yeah. and and i enjoy the fact that they love it and they're fascinated by it and they come back and they talk about it with their friends and they do projects at school and they talk about the places they've been to and you can see that they learned from it and they absorbed things from it and i think it will it will make them it will help them to have a much better more positive outlook on the world as a whole and to be less narrow in their thinking yeah. about certain issues uh, I, I don't uh, there's nothing bad about experience in the world if you can and i appreciate it's a luxury and i'm i'm in a fortunate position to be able to do that for them yeah, yeah. but nonetheless it's a good thing whether it's a luxury or not yeah i mean you've been a pilot you also like boats i mean you see the world in in different in different vehicles in different ways how does even being a pilot and even in boating how are those giving you different perspectives on, uh, on the landscapes around you well I, I did a lot of flying you know i was like i was an air display pilot for a long time you should do air shows all over Europe, mainly Britain, but all over Europe. Yeah. Uh, that was, was stunningly exciting. Um, really dangerous, though. Pretty much everyone I knew that did it was killed. Um, wow. I was When I first started display flying in 83, 84, I think, I was in a team of six people um, called the Harvard Formation Team. One of those original six, four of them were killed in different crashes. Oh, my God. The man that taught me aerobatics was killed. Um, every, pretty much everyone I knew, bar about three or four people that were doing it when I started, were, were gone, dead by the time I finished, got out of display flying myself. And the reason I got out of it was because it, I started, it was like having a family, I was married. You, you know, the way that you can sort of treat your life with a certain amount of um, lack of caution when you're single yeah and young and young you <laughs> yeah, know we're middle-aged so, but you know when you're younger <laughs> you know optimistic and you know somewhat arrogant about your skills as a pilot um you know when you get older that that changes you know my wife a really close friend of ours was killed in a, one of my teammates in another mm-hmm. team i was in he was killed and that really really brought it home to Gemma, my, my, my wife as yeah, yeah. you know the dangers of it and so from that moment on she didn't want me to do it so that support 
from home that you need, you know, because it's a pretty self-indulgent thing to do every weekend. That sure. suddenly that vanished overnight. And, you know, if you love someone, you don't want them to be frightened all the time that every time you walk out the door, you're, you're not going to come back. So, you know, I took that on board and then the children come along and, you know, they don't want to sit at an airfield every weekend watching dad disappear into the, into the blue distance. You know, they want to be going to the beach or going to Disneyland or whatever. So, (laughs) and I just wanted to be with them. So everything, everything sort of changed. And so I pulled out of it. Um, and then I, I found sort of normal conventional flying just it sounds insulting, but a little bit boring compared to being an air display pilot, which is all sort of low level and high G and dramatic, you know. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, you've talked about, I think in one interview, we were talking about thinking of getting back to later on, getting back to, this is a few years ago, I was talking about getting back to piloting or boating, maybe when the kids are grown up. Yeah. But by the same token, you didn't, you didn't consider these things to be relaxing. You called it alternative pressure, which I thought was yeah. interesting. Yeah, well, I think relaxing is overrated, you know. Um, <laughs> For you, yes. Relaxing is not necessarily fun or exciting. And, you know, pressure is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it keeps you, makes you feel like you're alive and you're doing something. I'm, I've got a real problem with not living life to the full. It's why I moved to America. I know it sounds silly, but it might sound silly, but... No. The weather, the weather in Britain is such that you know there's a fifty-fifty chance of any particular day, midsummer or not, it's going to rain and ruin everything that you plan to do for that day. Yeah, yeah. When I went past fifty, that really started to be a problem for me. I thought you know, I got so sick and tired of sitting indoors, looking out at this lovely, beautiful green scenery, you know, through the rain, looking at puddles filling up yet again. You know, it's got to be more to life than this. You know, just stuck indoors again because you can't do anything or go anywhere. Good thing you didn't move to Seattle. That's <laughs> where we was going to go, first of all. Um, ironically. That, yes, Seattle was the first place. And then we, we read about it. Oh, no, I don't fancy <laughs> that. And I've been, I've been there a few times and every time I've been there, it's it's been raining. As I said, not true. Actually, I've been there a couple of times. It's not been raining. But yes, quite wet, isn't it? <laughs> I had to bring that so up. We, uh, but we both loved Los Angeles, so we ended up so we ended up there. But it was really to do with that wanting, you know, to wake up, wake up in the morning, and be to be able to do what you'd planned to do. You know, if you want our friends over for a barbecue, it will probably happen in Los Angeles because nothing's going to stop it. In Britain, you know, it's almost certainly not going to happen. And you just, I just got frustrated by that and this paranoia about that I've got about getting old. You know, you know getting sick maybe and you know i just I, i'm terrified of it i'm not comfortable with getting old at all uh and i want to try to live as much as much as i can in what time i've got left because that's what i did before yeah. you know i was living living life you know and, and loving it all and if it was a bit risky that just seemed to add to the flavor of it to me and so i, I mean i miss the display flying i really do i mean I, where I live, um, there's a team in an air, there's, uh, we live really close to an airport, okay. a small airport, and there's a team there that fly the same airplanes that I used to fly, do the same thing that I used to do. So it just rubs salt in every weekend. They come over and I go, oh, I used to do that. Yeah, and I, and I miss it all again. Hmm. But so, uh, yeah, it, uh, <laughs> luckily, the career is doing so much better now. So musically, I'm really busy and I'm outside of a pandemic. I'm touring all the time. And so I kind of get in that sort of fulfilling life from that. But I, I miss I miss having a, an exciting hobby, to be truthful. So you were on the Graham Norton show it was like 15 years ago now, and I think you were talking about candle making. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Really exciting that. Is, that. is that still a thing or is that just a thing then? It's not much of a thing. Um, I still got my kit though. Still got my candle. Well, what inspired? Kit. I'm curious. What because given all these other interests that you have, what in, got got you into candle making? Oh, I've no idea. I I do. I love it though. I don't do it often anymore. My, my kids want me to teach them actually. I, That's cool. I left. Yeah, no, it's cool. I'm, I'm quite happy to hand over my kit to the kids. It's, it's in good hands. I honestly don't know what, it, but I, I get. I get some satisfaction out of making something that's useful 
you know, that I can use. So if we have a power cut, I'm not no one prouder than me when I light my own candles up to to put some light on the scene. I'm really proud of it. I even got to put in sort of um, aromas in them. So <laughs> yeah, oh, that's not really rock and roll, is it? You know what? There's, look, I just interviewed somebody about golfing. I've interviewed people about a wide variety of things. I mean, I spend a lot of time indoors. I think once this pandemic is over, I'm going to try to get out a bit more. I've, you know, like I, I sort of have the I have the vampire thing going on. I go to bed. I was with the bed at five in the morning today, and, and I oh, got up really? at about ten because I was cranking on a story. And I, so it gets a little surreal for some people, you know. And I, I, I I'm very creative at midnight. My mind is just. It's just there. And as someone said to me years ago, it's insomnia. I'm like, it's not insomnia. I have a different body clock. And for me, coffee is proof that human beings did not want to get up early in the morning because <laughs> you know, they're always drinking a lot to it. I don't drink any of it. I mean, I kind of feel very ADD where I'm always, there's always something on my mind. I guess part of the reason the pandemic has been weird for me in the sense of not seeing friends, but sort of better or, or okay for me to handle is because uh, I always have something I want to watch, read, write. There's always something to be absorbing. So I feel like my attention is always split in a bunch of different ways. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, you're a parent on top of that. So your attention is split in many ways anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got, I've got three children, all, all teenagers now. So the oh, pandemic has been really difficult. Yeah, really. And I've seen them deal with it very well, very well. And then it just fell off a cliff and it all just fell apart. Sort of yeah. just post, post Christmas, really. So I've been really worried about them. So, yeah, there's an added level of things to worry about compared to career and life in general. So, but, you know, most people have got kids, so we, we all go, we all go through it. I, I am very much always looking forward. I'm always thinking about what's coming and how I can shape it and what I can do to make it better for me and the family. And, you know, we're, be it creative things or, yeah, you don't know where you live. You know, I'm very, my wife gets frustrated with me. She says, I'm a glass half empty kind of person. And I, I don't quite see it like that. And she, mm. the reason she says that is if a bit of good news comes in, you know, let's say, you know, you've got a good, good chart position with the album or something like that. I'll go, oh, great. And then within about 10 minutes, I'm sort of, yeah, but now what then? What next? And she would say, can't you even just spend the day enjoying the fact that you, you know, you're number two or whatever, you know, just give it a day. She said, well, yeah, yeah, but, you know, what comes next? You know, I've got, you know, there's a target now, blah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. You know, your brain's off you go. So I don't see it as half empty. It's sort of half one step ahead because <laughs> I'm already thinking about where I'm going. You know, it's just not empty. It's just already moved on. <laughs> um, but that's kind of the way I'm, my brain works. You know, um, so yes, it is always busy because it's always thinking trying to think ahead and spot problems and that's because we're that's what we're used to doing and when you and all artists have these lulls in their career and so you certainly develop this you know there's a survival instinct that kicks in yeah you had success early on but you probably went through these peaks and valleys i had the same thing with my career i've had some years that have been great and other years where it's not quite the same and then you worry you, in the back of your mind like well what do i do next and then just artistically real i think true artists are never satisfied anyway you'll always look back at something you did and go oh there's that flaw yeah, you know, I call myself a pessimist with an optimist streak. It's sort of like I, <laughs> when when the kids are grown up, thinking of you know looking in the future, do you think it, is is boating something? For example, you might go back to. No, my, my wife has banned me from having a boat. She says you just rent one for an afternoon. And you can just give it back. You know, it makes sense actually. What she says makes a lot of sense. You know, why well, go all through the hassle of owning these things and paying for the upkeep and worrying about them with the storm you know you know what i mean all, all that were you, uh, you just, a, were you a speed demon on, on, yeah, on the waves i'm not it's no no it's not no actually it's not <laughs> I, I, i'm not about anything I, I my fascination with machinery which is huge isn't about speed it's about power being able to control the power of these things it just so happens that the byproduct of that often is speed but not always. You know, I had a boat in Britain that used to chug along about eight miles an hour. You know, it's, it's crawling around the, the sea. But I loved it. You know, it's really loads of motors, but just like a little ship it was. It used to power itself. I loved all that. I got really obsessed about it. I'm, I'm, I've got Asperger's. So I, I, I get obsessed really easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I get obsessed about things at the drop of a hat. So got a boat. Next thing I know, I've got about four or five different courses going on. And, qualifications for this 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 and this and this and this you know because it's it become everything um well, obviously you, you, you talked about how your asperger's is actually a benefit to you too 
Yeah, yeah, an absolute gift. I, I, you know, if I could live my time again, I definitely wouldn't get rid of it. Is that, but, is yeah, that in terms it, of juggling projects too, and all the different ideas that you have, absorbing information? Is, well, it must have a bearing on it, I'm sure. Certainly, it certainly colours the way you see the world. Well, well, the way you act to the world is shaped by by Asperger's. Um, you know, they talk about people with Asperger's having obsessive tendencies. Although that's a bad thing, you know, I don't see it as a bad thing. You know, in my business, it's a very, very useful thing to be obsessed about what your career and music and where you're going. You right, want right, right. that sort of devotion to it. But, you know, if you, if, if you was in an aeroplane, you'd want your pilot to be obsessed about flying an aeroplane, wouldn't you? you you'd, that would be a good <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, that would be a good thing. Yeah, so it's, being obsessive isn't a bad thing. You know, it's just, it's sort of got a, got a bad press. Really. <laughs> um I, I sounds like a motivational you know, speaking tour coming up now about this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, the only it gives you focus, and I'm able to emotionally sort of wrap things up and push them to one side. So you know, you know, I used to get a lot of bad reviews when I started. When the electronic music was was new, you know, there was a lot of hostility and resistance to it, and I kind of got the brunt of that because I was one of the first. People I remember, yeah, I think it. you were very nervous before your first top of the pops appearance too. Yeah, well, excited and nervous in equal measure. It was an amazing thing. But, you know, you, so, you know, that could have been for somebody else, that could have been quite difficult, the amount of hostility that came. Sure. But for me, I was able to just keep, you know, just we're going to wrap that up and just put that over there and move it to one side and just keep going. You're, you're, you're going this way. And all these emotions, right. they're just getting in the way. So we just move them to one side. Well, that's a very useful thing to be able to do. As other, you know, it has problems in other areas. I'm, I'm not particularly good in emotional situations. I don't give the support that people need. I don't feel things quite the same way. I feel very, very deeply, you know, but I don't feel in quite the same way, and I don't express it in quite the same way. And it's often misunderstood, and it's often not what people need. Yeah, and I, I'm aware of that, so I, I get very nervous if you know we, we just have one of our. One of our cats died actually a few days ago, oh, and I know sorry. that I'm. Oh, it's okay. How old he or she? She, she cat. She how old? How old is she? Don't know. We've got about twelve. Oh my god! Yeah, I've got a lot. What's my your... wife is my wife's animal. Make four dogs. Still got some sheep in Britain. Actually, got seven or eight sheep. <laughs> we, maybe we, maybe she's getting your veterinarian's license. That could be your next uh, <laughs> your outside project. <laughs> my next obsession. Yeah. Uh, so wow, yeah, it's it's tough to lose a pet. I mean. Even if you have many, even they all have their own personalities, and yeah, I, I, I feel it. But my, my my wife really suffers, really really suffers, and I'm not good at knowing how to be with with that, you know. So, and, I, and I'm aware of that. I mean, I know it's a failing of mine. So I try my best to be supportive and do all the right things and say all the right things and you know give a cuddle when it's necessary. But I know I'm not very good at it, and it's not natural so there is a there is a price to pay for the the good things that come with asperger's you know my emotional way of dealing with things is very very useful a lot of the time when it comes to career and bad reviews and you know stuff like that but it's really unfortunate in in other areas then i'm not very good socially my social interaction um with people i don't know very very well is very awkward and clumsy and I'm, i'm again i'm aware of that and i can sometimes appear to be a bit arrogant or a bit aloof and it's not i'm not any of those things i just don't know what to say and you know it's awkward well yeah i know it's interesting with my job i feel like i've it's made me more of a conversationalist i think i was a lot more shy when i was young and i have younger friends who are like really you're shy and i'm like yeah when i was younger i didn't i wasn't a group person i I didn't like high school i didn't like world presentations i kind of i did my movie (laughs) making and i kept to myself and it and I went to film school and then I had to start. And then once I did this gig and I sort of a career I really created for myself, I had to learn. I mean, this is the mid nineties. This is really, I feel that that's still almost pre-internet. The internet was just starting to become a factor. So you'd have to go to a show and find a publicist. You'd they said, oh, I'm wearing a red jacket. And then you get there, it's like five people wearing a red jacket, They're all women <laughs> or men. And you're like, oh, and you had to learn to speak to people you didn't know. And so I've had to do that. But I do understand when you can get you know, I've, I've tried to temper things. Like when I'm in a conversation, I can get intense, something I'm like, all right, you know, I'm just going to make a light joke now and kind of pull it back. You know, some artists are like that. I know people who just get very passionate about what they do, but then you do have to socially occasionally pull back. Okay. I got to make a light joke now or <laughs> lighten the mood a little bit, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. It's, and I, but I understand also what you're saying about emotions. I mean, I, 
I feel like I'm an emotional person, but you know, my, my father's a pragmatic scientist. You got it. He studied geology at MIT and my mom is from Cuba and she's a classically trained pianist who's more emotional. So there's a mixture that I have there of the two that are kind of pulling, pushing and pulling within me. So I understand sometimes like I might not respond to something that it depends. Like I, I try to be objective about stuff. And during the pandemic, I've, you know, I know my girlfriend and other people haven't been happy about a lot of things. I'm trying to be not freaking out too much, I guess, in a sense, because if I do that, it probably just makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it's hit me later on. I'm sure you maybe feel the same way. Like you can get hit with emotions when people aren't around and you're like, oh, you suddenly feel a little overwhelmed by something and maybe you're not expressing it publicly. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Not, no, it, it's, it feels to me often like that, that, that last straw, something will happen and it will be a relatively minor thing, but that's enough to tip you over the edge. It, when I was younger, I was never able to, it felt as if I was never able to, emotions would build and build and build and but it would never go back it wouldn't it, it wasn't mm. like that it would just, okay. and then it would come a point it would go poof i'd go absolutely mad about nothing you know some trivial little thing seemed like a massive overreaction to everybody but it was all of it all of it come out then and then i would be empty again and it would start to fill up and fill up fill up and i could see other people get angry and it would go back Gang, well we kind of catalog it we wait and then the dam it builds up and then the dam bursts yeah 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 i mean your emotion and your ideas come out in the music mm-hmm. you've obviously found the right partner who understands you very clearly oh god yeah you've been together a long time i know she was a fan beforehand yeah, yeah. but that it she clearly understands who you are and I'm assuming yeah. by now your kids do <laughs> for all your moods and quirky artist sensibilities yeah well we're up you know we, i've been together with Gemma now for nearly 30 years. So yeah. Yeah. But you're right from the beginning. She was, she was fantastic for me and yeah. she understood me and she was able to, I was a very difficult person when we met, you know, and yet she had the patience and mm. perseverance to deal with that and then try to make me understand why I was like that. And so get better and identify the things that I did that were, yeah, yeah difficult or unpleasant a lot of the my dealing with the asperger side of me is thanks to her because she was she helped me identify when i was being asperger's you know and i think if you got you know if you're sort of reasonably bright you can you can identify certain behaviors which might be inappropriate and you can modify them you can adapt and it might not be a natural thing it might be a mechanical kind of solution sure. but it works you know um I have a thing with eye contact, you know, eye contact is a real issue. And so I, I count all the time I'm speaking to people face to face. Yeah. I'm counting, you know, and I don't look anyone in the eye for more than five seconds because that would be too intense. And I don't look at anybody for less than three because that would imply I'm not interested in what they're saying. It's just my system anyway. So the whole time I'm talking to somebody, I'm counting, you know, so I actually find conversation quite um, stressful, tiring, because I'm doing sort of math the whole time. <laughs> One, two, I, three. And in my head, I'm talking, I'm counting at the same time. I'll, I'll look away and I'll come back again. So, And it's all artificial because I don't know how to be, for real. Well, you know, I, I'm one of those people that talks and they look off and I'm talking and they look back at the person. I kind of look around a lot. And sometimes I catch myself like, am I doing that too much? You know, because <laughs> there's some people that are like that that will look directly. Everyone has it in. I've thought about this as I get older now. And I just think about, how, you know, body language, like you can sit there with your arms crossed. And for a lot of people, that means you're bored or you're unhappy. And sometimes it's me. I'm distressed in my arms. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I'm, it's like, it's weird. Like there's basic cues that, you know, that people are going to interpret in a certain way. And then there's sometimes you do have to learn with certain friends. Well, that's just the way they are. Yeah. Yeah. But I know it. And, and I, I part of the reason I love this job is they don't have to meet a lot of you guys, you know, just randomly on the street, you know, because <laughs> I'm sure you're tired of me, Gary Newman. Hey, you know, like it, it's it. And sometimes I understand how that's strange for people, you know, I mean, if they get approached a lot, I'm glad I've had a chance to interface this way. And if I do meet somebody in person, I'm like, Hey, you know, we had this chat or whatever. Right. Now do you have yeah. any, do you have any yeah. travel tips for people like good travel tips for people who maybe are newer travelers, if they're going to make the most, the Newman way, how do you enjoy the most <laughs> on your vacation? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really pedantic about documentation. I have everything printed out in the order that I'm going to need it. Ah, interesting. And have a, I have a file and, and everything I'm going to need, you know, from flight tickets to car hire 
right, um, right. hotels, all of that, all in the order that it's, I expect it to be requested so that I don't panic. I'm a terrible panicker when I'm faced with authority and I mm. get really intimidated really, really quickly by a, an immigration officer or something like that. I'm really, really like a little boy, nervous little boy. And so I like to have everything ready, everything in order. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that would be my tip. Get yourself, get yourself in order. Don't bumble up to the immigration man. It's not fumbling in your bag. You know, Oh, I've got it here somewhere, you know, don't do that. Oh, especially yeah. when you're going to Cuba. I went there four years ago on a, on a fast yeah. and furious eight junket. <laughs> and like my mom's from there. So I got to sort of see, well, I got to see post communism as opposed to when she was there. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're walking in this room and half every other fluorescent light is out in the waiting area. And then you get there and I brought a camera. I had no problem. Another guy that I knew that was in the media, he was got all his stuff searched. I think, I think we saw sort of a, a confrontation with the tourists and police out there. And then of course you get tossed in jail for the night. You know, you can't get annoyed by that. You're in a communist country. So avoid doing anything that will get you in trouble. I mean, unless somebody starts a fight with you, just, you know, be cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, different countries. And I'm sure you know this. Imagine you've been in the Middle East and you, know, you have to different countries. You have to behave differently. You have to understand what the culture is and respect the customs. Yeah. Just a little bit of research when you get there. Especially if you're going sort of somewhere a little bit out of the norm. If you're not going to main Europe, you know, place like that you know just do a little bit of research find out what's acceptable there are some countries you know where showing the soles of your feet is deeply insulting where well, you, i can't remember now <laughs> i have to research it again <laughs> but you know stuff like that you, you need to know that you, know, you could really really get into trouble isn't it interesting how like we can do all these things and then you forget you forget like Oh yeah, I did this. Like as, as I've gone on, I've been doing this 26 years now. And I'm thinking, wow, I forgot I interviewed this person. Like, how could I do that? And you've probably had so many experiences when you're writing your book. You're like, oh yeah, I did that. And it's, it's yeah. amazing. And that at least it means you're living a full life. Yeah. For, well, since, since I finished the book and the, the book's 45 chapters long, you know, it's massive. There's a lot of detail in there. Uh, and all I've done since I, since I wrote it is, is just keep adding, remembering things I forgot to put in it. I've got a massive list on my phone now for when the paperback comes out. I've got to write wow. loads more sort of anecdotes about, and some of them are sort of pretty major, major things that I just totally, totally forgot. And every day, every day I'm thinking, oh, I should have written about that, you know. So, yeah, so far, been an amazing life. That's cool. You know, not all great, but all worthwhile. And I've still got, you know, plenty of time left, hopefully, to add a bit more to it. Yes, that's the attitude. <laughs> well, listen, it was great to chat with you. Oh, thank you, man. Andrew. Well, good luck. Hopefully this new album will do just as well as the last one. Oh, I hope so. Regardless, I'm enjoying it, you know. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Hopefully we'll chat again sometime. I hope so. See All you right. again. Thank you, sir. See you oh. later on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. That wraps up the latest Side Jams. Please join me for the next episode, which will feature guitarist Andy Summers. As always, my theme music comes from Fox and the Law, licensed through AudioSocket. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>